The Talkin' Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. The Golf Society is founded on the belief that the latest golf trends, fashion and concepts shouldn't be compromised, but shared with every golfer. Shop online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 27 of the Talking Golf History podcast, the history of Donald Ross. In our second season of the Talking Golf History podcast, we will focus on the history of some of golf's greatest architects. We will have podcasts dedicated to Seth Rayner, Charles Blair McDonald, Harry Colt, Old Tom Morris, Walter Travis, A.W. Tillinghast, James Braid, and Langford and Moreau. But today, we kick off our season with the Scottish golfer, greenkeeper, clubmaker, hotel proprietor, and architect Donald Ross. Born in Dornick, Scotland, apprentice under Old Tom Morris. Donald Ross made his mark on the game by designing more than 400 golf courses, both public and private. Out of all the architects I just named, it could be argued that Donald Ross is the most well-known by the everyday golfer. For the first time in our podcast's history, I have split our interview into two episodes. Episode 27 will cover the restoration of Donald Ross's work, as well as Bradley's thoughts on some of Ross's best courses, as well as the best publicly accessible courses, so that you can get a better understanding of the genius of Donald Ross. Episode 28 will cover the history of Donald Ross, the influence of Pinehurst on his career, and finally an in-depth look at his design process. Now more on Bradley Klein. Bradley Klein is a veteran golf journalist specializing in architecture and maintenance. Bradley is a former PGA Tour caddy. He was architecture editor of Golf Week for 28 years before moving on with the Golf Channel's GolfAdvisor.com, and he now writes a column for Golf Course Industry. Bradley holds a PhD in political science, and he was a university professor for 14 years in international relations and political theory. He has published nine books on golf course architecture and history, including Discovering Donald Ross, winner of the USGA 2001 International Book Award. In 2006, Klein was inducted into the International Caddy Hall of Fame. In 2015, he won his industry's highest honor, the American Society of Golf Course Architecture's Donald Ross Award for a Lifetime Achievement. Bradley Klein has served as a consultant on numerous golf course development and restoration projects, including Old MacDonald at Bandon Dunes, 
the California Golf Club, and Scioto Country Club. He is currently working on six Ross restorations, including Longmeadow Country Club in Massachusetts and the Country Club of Waterbury in Connecticut. You can also follow Bradley Klein on Twitter at at Bradley S. Klein. Without any further ado, let's jump in to our exciting interview with our guest, Bradley Klein. Bradley, thank you so much for joining us on the 27th episode of Talking Golf History. Uh, pleasure to be here, Connor. You know, Bradley, I read your book, Discovering Donald Ross, twice in the last week. What possessed you to take on this project? Um, I was, uh, at the time, uh, this is the late 1990s, and I was looking for a, a project. Um, I had... Um, I was in the middle of transitioning from an academic to a full-time golf writer. You know, I have a PhD in political science. I know my way into libraries. Uh, I had written a book on U.S. nuclear defense strategy. And uh, so I kind of was comfortable with archives. And I had published Rough Meditations, a collection of essays uh, based on some columns in Golf Week that I was writing. And I got contacted um, about the poss- by a Sleeping Bear Press at the time about the possibility of helping out with um, a biography. And um, the material had been gathered. Uh, it was all at the Tufts Archive. Much of it, I should say, was at the Tufts Archives in um, Pinehurst. And there was a researcher who was going to do the project. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away. And um, they came to me and asked me if I would do it. And I agreed. So... I kind of, um, starting in 1998, I uh, started spending a lot of time at the Pinehurst uh, Archives at the Given Memorial Library. The Tough Archives there has a collection of much, but not uh, all, of Ross's papers, uh, because Donald Ross uh, lived in town at Pinehurst, and uh, after he died in 1948, his papers went to the library. So uh, they have a very big a collection of the design work, memos, telegrams, documents, and uh, I started going through it. And over the next uh, three years, I spent probably a hundred days just in Pinehurst. Uh, spent spent a lot of time at the uh, the Caroline Hotel and some of the other places. They were very kind to put me up. I usually showed up without my golf clubs because uh, I had work to do. And um, I had also spent a lot of time looking at Ross courses because I happened to have been at the time a member of Wampanoag Country Club in Connecticut, in the West Hartford, Connecticut, which was the home of the Donald Ross Society. It's kind of coincidental. So I was pretty well tied into that. Um, and I was uh, meeting with Mike Fay and the, became ultimately a member of the board of the, of the Ross Society for a while. So I had a kind of strong institutional commitment um, and, and being in New England here. There was a lot of Ross courses to look at. I also uh, happened to have been um, a member at Royal Dornick. I had joined in 1988, uh, and so I, I'd spent a lot of time in Scotland. Uh, so the combination of ability to travel, to see his courses, I contacted the Ross family. Uh, his daughter, uh, Elizabeth, was still alive at the time. I Spent a lot of time with her. I went around to uh, every house in New England that Ross lived in and um, s- met people. I, down at um, the Pinehurst Resort, I actually found people who, who had caddied for him. 
uh, Pete Dye, who knew Ross uh, because uh, from the 1940s when Pete was stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. They used to drive over 30 miles to the uh, resort, and he met Ross back then. He would tell me stories. The family um, was trying to be helpful. Uh, they had a lot of material that the library at Pinehurst did not have. And uh, the other thing I did is I started visiting a lot of Ross courses. And so uh, in the book, I document or I list, I think 406 or seven of his courses. He's sometimes credited with 600. That's a wrong figure. As I found out that that myth of 600 was started by an obituary in the New York Times uh, after Ross passed away in April of 1948. And that number was used all the time. Even Herbert Warren Wynn, the great writer, referenced 600. And he got that from the New York Times as well. It's a misleading figure. Anyway, there are about 406 or seven courses uh, with uh, some version of Ross heritage. Uh, and by the time I finished writing the book in 2001, I had visited about 175 of them. And uh, what I did with the book um, is um, I had a lot of photography, a lot of graphics, a lot of design plans. I essentially uh, laid out all the images in a row and just started writing to tie the images together. So I kind of designed the book in my head as I wrote it and then laid it out from there. And I did the entire layout. Sleeping Bear Press at the time was very helpful in just doing what I asked them to do. And uh, one of the tricks I used, if you're, um, it's a great trick I use all the time in my history books, is I start, the, the first part of the book is saturated with black and white, and then I I, we I weave in more and more color material so that by the second half of the book, it's saturated with color and it kind of conveys a feeling as you move through the ages. You know, that's interesting because I didn't even notice that. Uh, I read the book twice last week and I, I, I didn't pick that up. That's amazing. Well, it's one of those things you're not supposed to pick up. Yeah, it's supposed to have. I love it. That's, that's exactly right. So uh, it took three years of uh, a lot of time in libraries and writing and rewriting uh, because uh, once I had the text, um, I knew that the book had to work at two levels simultaneously. It had to be a book you had you could read and it had to be a book you had to look at. And I dare say I suspect most people who go through the book spend more time looking at it than reading. So I spent an enormous amount of time with the captions and uh, making sure that the illustrations conveyed a story that carried the tale independently, even though it's coterminous with the text. Um, so that's what I did. And uh, I look back on it and I kind of wonder how I did it. Uh, I wrote most of it at three in the morning. Um, you know, I'm at the age now where I look back and I can't imagine what I did and how I got away with it because um, I, I like sleeping once in a while now and I wasn't doing that then because at the time I was also... Uh, starting up a new magazine for Golf Week called Superintendent News. So I was writing that, um, basically editing it like crazy and uh, doing the research on uh, discovering Donald Ross. So anyway, it got done. And Sleeping Bear at the time uh, did a very good job. I was very happy with the production. Uh, and uh, we released it. And it won the uh, Herbert Warren Wind International Book Award of the United States Golf Association, which was a, a real thrill for me and a real affirmation. And I'm glad to say that the book is still selling. I have a dedicated website for it uh, at uh, www.discoveringdonaldross.com. And I'm still 
got boxes in the garage and I still send it out and uh, sign it. And um, so, you know, the, yeah. So, so the point is that I, and I spent a lot of time, I have to tell you most of what happens, uh, I, I get this all the time. Yeah. You go to parties and a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer will say, gee, you know, I'd love to have your job. How do you do it? And the answer is you get up at four in the morning and you travel 150 days a year and you spend an awful lot of time at golf courses walking rather than playing and talking to superintendents and talking to architects and going through plans and dusting off things and uh, going to, uh, you know, to Ujica Country Club in Rome, New York, where Ross spent uh, the summer of 1923 after his first wife, Janet, had died. And he had a girlfriend and he was up there. And I met uh, an older woman uh, who had um, trying to get this straight, uh, who knew Ross from those days in the 1920s. And um, she was quite senior. Ross spent the summer up there. And I'll just tell you one great story that was indicative of the kind of research you end up doing. So Ross spends the summer of, a good part of the summer of 1923 in Rome, New York, with a woman he uh, was going to marry. She passed away before he could. Uh, and um, so about sometime later during the research, and so I knew Ross's, I had his diaries in my hand. I had his train tickets. I had um, memos and letters and telegrams. Now, so... Um, and I'm standing there at the Sakonet, at Little Compton, Rhode Island, which was a summer home that Ross's second wife, Mrs. Blackington, owned. And Ross uh, lived there in the summers after 1926 or so. And I stayed at the house. I actually slept in Ross's bedroom. Um, and uh, I'm standing there in, it was in August of um, whatever year, two, might have been 99. Uh, and uh, I'm sitting there with uh, Ross's daughter, Elizabeth, and um, she says to me, it was a day just like this when I remember Daddy told me that Warren Harding had died. Uh, Harding had been poisoned or got uh, President Harding and died of uh, some kind of food poisoning up in Seattle in 1920, August of 23. And I thought to myself, no, actually, when Harding died, I know Ross was up in Rome, New York that week. But I'm not going to tell her that. So, uh, it, uh, you know, she I had a respect for her. Unfortunately, she passed away before the book was published, but she was very helpful. I spent time with her. We sat at her piano. She, she lived up in uh, Vermont, and we sat at the piano that her parents had given her upon her wedding in the 1930s. And um, and she, in her, this was very amazing. This was 1998, 99. Her, she was widowed by then, the daughter. And um, over her bed was a photograph of her father, Donald Ross. And it was really moving. The so, doting daughter still to this day, right? Uh, at the time, yeah. She yeah. passed away, well, yeah. but she was doting, doting to the end. So I had to be respectful. And um, the the family, the particularly the granddaughter, um, they had some plans that were not in the public domain, that were not available at the Tufts archives. And um, they wanted to make them available, but basically in exchange for approval on the book. And I did not want to do that uh, because I was concerned that they might feel that some of the book was, uh, I don't know, I didn't want to just, I didn't want to open up that can of worms. So I decided, yeah, so I decided to forego a commitment to that material um, in exchange for having the freedom to write what I, and I had enough material anyway. So, you know, um, still too bad, right? That it came with a condition, yeah, some, I suppose. 
Well, they do have or they did have some plans that were not available. And at one point, I remember um, I negotiated uh, or independent. I just tried. I served as a middleman. Uh, a club wanted their set of plans. And I found out that the family had them and they wanted to sell them to the club. And I reminded them that uh, actually they had already bought them, you know, 80 years ago. So um, seven years ago. So at a certain point, I kind of gave up. Uh, and um, I'm glad I did. Um, I would have gained a little bit, but uh, one of the things I found out was that the family was extremely protective, and um, it was just easier for me to proceed on my own. So, uh, but I and what I I did have a, quite a bit of material on Ross's own life. I had um, I'd spent a, quite a bit of time in in Dornick, in Scotland, uh, going through his school records, uh, walking the paths that he took recreating uh, his journeys to the United States, arriving in Boston and walking to the house of uh, Professor Robert Wilson at Harvard, who was the astronomer who you brought him over. You did this too? Well, I walked the path, sure. Wow. That is getting uh, into your that, subject. Getting well, I found out that, yeah, you find, I found out the day that he arrived, uh, it was early April of uh, 1899. It had just snowed. I got the, you know, you get the report from the Boston newspapers, you go through the archives, you, you walk, you measure, they find out how far it was. He's carrying a golf bag with six clubs and a suitcase. Bradley, I like you. You too, like I, we should both be committed. I like this about you. This, I did not know you did, went to this much effort. It's unbelievable. Uh, well, I'm doing the same thing now with Herbert Warren Wind. I'm writing a very long profile of him. I just, I've been to his house in Love Manhattan. It. Um, you sort of reproduce, I got hold of his dog tags from the army days. So if you want to immerse yourself, that's what you have to do. And, um, uh, and the other thing I did is I, I, I found out a lot of, for Ross, uh, I traced through his two leading, um, um, associates, longtime associates, Walter Hatch and J.B. McGovern. And in fact, I'm still now in touch with, uh, Walter Hatch's grandson, Professor uh, at Rutgers, and we're in the process of writing an article about Hatch, uh, who's completely unknown in the whole process. But uh, so you you got to spend a lot of time, and I got to say this: uh, in the new age of social media and various websites and and blogs and people who think that they're you know woke, whatever that means, uh, there's a lot of glib. There's a lot. There's a lot of glib superficiality and judgmental uh, off the top of their head. It has nothing to do with what actually happened. And so I, I, I'm really devoted both to recreating the historical process and I spent thousands of hours with superintendents um, getting up in the morning, walking with them. Uh, I do a lot of consulting with clubs and uh, behind the scenes. I understand the business of uh, operations and of feasibility studies and of return on investment so that um, – I think it's really important not to just be glib. You know, you don't just restore a golf course because you think it's cool. It has to make sense. There has to be a record. You have to have some. That doesn't mean you're going to reproduce what was there because given the conditions of construction back then, you wouldn't want to reproduce what was there because, uh, you know, the grass was being mowed at a – the greens were a quarter inch rolling to four on the stint meter. There were two sets of tees and uh, there was probably very little drainage and uh, – so, you know, the conditions have changed, so you have to make some adjustments. But you want to find out what they were and what issues they were dealing with at the time, and then how does that suit where the game is today. But you've got to really do your research. And I got tired of some of those websites of giving away, you know, commentary for free and then taking all that heat and nonsense and 
crap from people who'd sort of just attack you out of nowhere when they just didn't know what they were talking about. So I've learned, you know, I've got a thick enough skin, uh, you know, and I, I've heard from all these Ross experts, oh, Ross never put a bunker on the outside of a dog leg. He never put a bunker behind the green. That's all nonsense. I could find every variance of uh, example, counterexample. He experimented with form. He had no set pattern. I mean, he had sort of holes that he liked. Uh, he had holes that he, uh, I wouldn't say repeated, but you could sort of see where it was going. He loved to have a short thumbprint par three. He often had a very, very long 230-yard par three as well. But they varied. So I think one of the things you learn when you really do your research is uh, how smart and sophisticated and uh, flexible these guys were in the field to accommodate different conditions and to adjust, but also to rely upon things they knew that were going to work. But um, Let me ask you this, Bradley. Uh, you're an expert consultant for Donald Ross uh, course restoration projects. And, and you mentioned this a little bit, but could you would you mind sharing what that entails and maybe a story or two? Like, how do you go about, how, first of all, how did you get into being a, an expert consultant in Donald Ross restorations? And maybe uh, a couple examples of projects you've been involved with. Well, first, I wouldn't call myself an expert at Don Ross. Uh, I just did. Though. Uh, it's I'm, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to fight. Yeah. Uh, well, the first thing is I wrote a book, and then the book got a lot of attention, and then people started asking me, hey, what do you think? And at the time, uh, because I was involved in the ratings process at Golf Week, I was seeing so many different places. And one of the things you see in New England is you see an awful lot of garbage renovation work that had been done in the 50s and 60s by architects who uh, should have known better and didn't. And um, it's kind of an unfortunate legacy of uh, well-intentioned people, uh, but restoration was just never part of the catchword or the the conversation in golf until the late 1980s. And so one of the things I'm really proud of in my journalism, I went out of my way to really uh, promote and uh, propagandize, if you will, on behalf of restoration, tree management, firm and fast, traditional ground game, uh, restoration of, of, of those ground features. And I, I had a platform at Golf Week for years and I really hammered away at it. So I think the combination of the book, uh, the uh, relentless uh, campaign I ran about um, classical golf courses, Golden Age, and also the su success that the golf industry has seen, starting with the, the fact that the country club uh, in Brookline held the 1988 U.S. Open, and they it, before that they had brought the Open to Shinnecock, and it was a real success, and so uh, the industry has changed. And I saw this personally, because I used to caddy on the PGA Tour uh, in graduate school, uh, probably about 75 events total, including six U.S. Opens. And I, I could tell, you could see that the smart players loved the classic golf courses. Uh, the mid-range players, the guys who were sort of out there trying to make a living, they didn't care. But the smart, really good shot makers. Uh, I'll never forget, I'm caddying. This is at the 79 U.S. Open at Inverness. And I'm, uh, I was caddying for Mike McCullough that week, but I happened to pick up Andy Bean on Monday practice round which was a big thing because the day before he had just won in Atlanta and he gets to his, uh, gets to Inverness early. Um, I knew a lot of the players cause I've been selling, I've been making yardage books and selling them with gorgeous George Lucas. So I knew all the players by then I picked up Andy Bean for practice round. We're paired with Tom Weisskopf and, um, this was the golf course, Inverness, that the Fazios, George and Tom Fazio, were just kind of hacked up with about four holes that just didn't belong. They had butchered 
a couple of old holes. And I'll never forget, and I've written this many times, we're going around the golf course, and I overhear Weisskopf talking about what a disaster the renovation was. And then he says, this is 1979, he says, someone ought to create a society to preserve Donald Ross's work. Um, and, and so 10 years later, I happened to be a member of, well, I st- 10 years later, I start playing at Wampanoag. I didn't join Wampanoag till 95 or 96, but by then, Mike Faye, and his gang had started the Ross Society. Uh, I had a couple of disagreements at times with um, some of their approach. I thought they were a little dogmatic, but I have a lot of respect for what they achieved because they, more than any other group, uh, propagandized the cause and beat the drum uh, and uh, really made uh, the notion of Ross restoration part of the conversation. Uh, And... um, so I began to pick up on that. Uh, I ultimately left the Raw Society because I thought it was important to have an ind- to be independent of them. I didn't think it was appropriate uh, to be a society on behalf of restoration and at the same time favoring certain architects. So I decided I was going to go off on my own and help out. And basically what happened is I started going around to clubs and I should say, you know what, I could tell you. They would ask me what I thought. I would tell them. And, and then I said, you want me to write that up? And yeah. So the, the first one, I think, was uh, one of the early ones was Hyde Park in Cincinnati. Uh, they had some issues. They, I, I was a speaker. I did a book signing, I think. And I said, you know, I had some thoughts about the golf course. Why don't I write them up? I wrote them up. Um, actually, I wrote them up before the book because I, I published that in the book. Uh, there's a chapter about a consulting report, which is my report from Hyde Park. That was one of the very first consulting reports I did as a Ross person. And I ran it in the book. And um, I just, you know, they paid me for my time. And the next thing you know, they went out and began to explore. And I helped them gather some material. And they ended up uh, hiring uh, Tim Liddy uh, out of uh, Indiana to do a restoration. He's still working there 20 years later. And they've done a great job. So what happened was I kind of clicked with um, – I've been doing some kind of consulting here and there, but the Ross thing gave me a little bit of an insight into the complexity, the politics, the um, the seriousness with which people took it, and uh, the most important. And I've written this up. I've written this up. I was stunned by the emotional pathos that accompanied any discussion of restoration, uh, mainly having to do with trees, but also about you know cross bunkers. Bunkers that are, you know, they're 120 yards off the tee. What are they doing there? And people would scream and yell and all these fights. And, and you were coming against pe- coming up against people who had made those changes. And uh, they were established architects like Jeffrey Cornish, for example, who made a living modernizing golf courses. And Robert Trent Jones made a big thing out of it. Uh, and if you look at all the work that Trent Jones did, uh, starting with Oakland Hills in 1951, he turned his back on classical architecture, and it was clear to me that a whole generation of post-war golf course architects like Jones, Dick Wilson, uh, Joe Lee, uh, Jeffrey Cornish, uh, they were making a living by changing. Now, the, the irony is that Jeff Cornish was the greatest gentleman in the world. He was a wonderful supporter. He encouraged me because I knew him. He was from Amherst, Massachusetts, and I was a grad student in Amherst. Uh, he was a, a mentor to me in many ways. Uh, and he venerated the classic golf courses in the wonderful book that he and Ron Witten wrote. Uh, the golf course was kind of a real eye-opener. And for someone who understood and appreciated 
the legacy of classical architecture, but in his daily practice, he was butchering these courses. So that was a real kind of dilemma, and uh, it worked its way through, and it's taken many, many years in New England to undo a lot of the damage that he and others, Alzacoros among them, had done to these classic courses. And there's a whole generation of architects now, like Gil Hans and Ron Force and Kyle France um, and uh, Ron Pritchard um, in New England and, you know, Chris Spence down in the Carolinas. Uh, and I, I'm leaving out others, obviously, but um, for no particular, Brian Silva, all of them have made a, um, a career out of fixing the the bad modernizations that had been imposed on the classic courses in the 60s and 70s. And I, I felt like I was going to blow the whistle on that. And there were others. But I took a more uh, directive stance about this. I always thought Ron Whitten at Golf Digest could have done more. I think he's a little more uh, self-contained and more studious and more, uh, you know, he's like a prosecuting attorney, which is what his day job was for years. So he doesn't take as much of a judgmental view on these things as I did. And so I was always kind of a dogmatic educator about this. And so I started, um, you know, uh, Beverly Country Club. I helped them think about what they were doing. Um, that was one of the early ones. Uh, when uh, John Folk got the job at Pine Needles uh, to do that restoration, I was an advisor, if you will, writing a report. And I've gone on to, you know, many, many golf courses. I recently finished uh, helping Scioto in Columbus, Ohio, define what they could be and what they once were. And a lot of what I do is just reclaim a record. And so one of the things we found at Scioto were old aerials, and uh, they have a great historical committee, but I, I kind of helped them understand the way in which it influenced the design. They had cross bunkers all over the place. They had short carry stuff in front of tees. They had lots of... Um, amazingly difficult golf course. They had lots of bunkers behind the greens. They had bunkers on the outside of dog legs. And they've recently hired, uh, they're, they're going through this process. And I think they've announced that they've hired Andrew Green to do a restoration. And he's the one who did Inverness and he just finished Oak Hill. And he's one of the guys is also, I think, a real pure, uh, uh, aggressive restorer of, uh, and rescuer of these golf courses. So uh, I've helped out a lot. I'm currently working um, I'll give you a great example, actually. One of the ways I'm, I'm actually doing a master plan for Kennett Square Golf and Country Club in um, uh, Pennsylvania. It's just south of Philadelphia. It's really closer to Wilmington. Now, that's a nine-hole Ross course. We like to say that it had uh, nine holes Donald Ross and nine holes Daffy Duck because uh, they had some goofy nine holes that were added by the pro or somebody across the road. And you go out there and you see – Boy, there's some great stuff, and then there's there, there was some really bad stuff. This was 20 years ago when I first saw it. I found an aerial. There's a great archive in the Hadley um, Library in Wilmington. Um, Colonel Dolan, who was a photographer, a golf enthusiast, and an aviator. Uh, he uh, was ultimately he became secretary of Pennsylvania airports, but he used to, in the 1920s, in the 30s, he was going around the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. He'd mount a camera on the belly of an airplane, and he'd fly over the golf course in, and, and create non-distorted, you know, not oblique angle, but direct look-down angles on hundreds of golf courses, and it's a great archive. Oddly enough, he retired and went to live in, well, guess where, Pioneers, North Carolina. Um, uh, 
but uh, that archive is a wonderful uh, source of material, and a lot of people have used it. And uh, we got hold of the old aerial of Kennett Square, and you go out there now, and you can exactly find the original nine. They're still there. And then there was the nine-hole thing, and then the idea was, well, let's try to match them up. So that was an example where we had, uh, and it's gone through various phases, and it's a gradual process, but more and more those holes are looking like one set of 18 holes rather than two disparate sets of nine holes. And that was a way of taking the original Ross plan and um, kind of weaving it into the bunkering and the, and the shaping of the uh, the the secondary nine that they had. That was one example. I'm still working there. Um, I'm working at um, Long Meadow Country Club, just north of here, uh, south uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. They just hired Pat Sisk, the superintendent, who was long time at Milwaukee Country Club. Before that, he was a country club at Fairfield, a real wonderful greenkeeper. And there, all we're doing, they had uh, an old Ross course that was really done by Walter Hatch, um, we have the original drawing from Hatch of 1921. It's not very distinct. I'm in the process of uh, – I'm working with a kind of an interesting guy out of California named Tommy Nacarado. And Tommy does a lot of the graphics work for a lot of designers. Uh, he does a lot with Gil Hans. And, yeah, so I'm using – I got a hold of uh, – well, we all, we all knew what the aerial uh, design, the graphic plan looked like. It was not very distinct. We're in the process of sharpening it. We're going to colorize it and then uh, use that as the base map, if you will, for um, enhancing what they have. Now, they've already gone through a, a restoration with Ron Pritchard about 20 years ago. It was a good start. They got a lot of trees out of there. They, the bunkering is close. But now, you know, you start looking at some of the shapes and it's a matter of widening. A lot of it is just taking out trees, widening fairways, expanding the lines and starting to look at what you have. So one of the things I encourage at clubs, um, and I'm doing the same thing at Waterbury, Country Club of Waterbury, uh, where I've been working for a couple of years uh, in conjunction with Matt Dusenberry, an architect I've worked with. I, I by the way, I love working with different architects. I don't have any one favorite. I've worked with lots of them, uh, and I don't I don't work for them. Uh, I work separately. I get paid by the club, and uh, sometimes they'll hire an architect, or sometimes I'll hire the architect. But uh, it varies with everybody. And, and it's, sometimes I just help the club pick out an architect uh, to fit their style. And one of the things I tell them is, um, let's be realistic here. You're not going to – let's find out what the strengths and weaknesses of your place are, what's the potential, what it used to be, what you could have, and who's the character of architect that's going to fit best. One of the things I tell them is uh, don't expect to – to know the name of the architects I'm going to recommend because a lot of them are unknown. Uh, they're not famous people um, or they're not yet famous people. Um, and so there's a big shift in the industry. I think there's a lot more down-to-earth work going on. And uh, some of the big names who um, thought they could cash in on, on this have found out that restoration is actually a lot of work and it's a lot of detail, a lot of meetings. So I'm working with a whole bunch of different people. Andy Staples, for example. Andy, love a uh, good friend of mine. Yeah, uh, I'm actually helping Olympia Fields there on a yeah. Willie Park. I've, I've, I've been involved with about seven or eight Willie Park courses, about 40 Ross courses. Did you? Were you uh, involved but, with Meadowbrook with him as well? Oh, yeah. I was there before he was. Oh, really? Uh, I, I didn't walked, know that. Yeah. I, I walked him through the whole process. Yeah, I was and, supposed to play uh, there last year with him, and uh, I had a doctor's thing I couldn't miss. Uh, surgery, yeah, well, to be specific. Was, yeah. Yeah, they had uh, they had a, a sort of a part of a Willie Park course and part of this and that, and they ended up 
with an amazing process. And I've, I've heard amazing one of the things, things. And, yeah, one of the things Andy did is he said, "Let's go look at original Willie Park." He took him over to England, and they they looked at uh, Hunter. I think it's Hunter, Hunter Comb. Yep, Hunter Comb. And uh, they found some stuff that they brought back. So, you know, there's Andy's a great hardworking guy. I've worked with Brian Silva, with Tim Liddy, uh, with Chris Spence. Uh, I even worked with Jerry Pate at the Country Club of Mobile. Yeah, Chris Spence's work. Um, yeah, Chris Spence has a. He just did the restoration work over at Sarah Bay, Bobby Jones's uh, winter course in the year of uh, 1926. That restoration yep. is fantastic. I don't know if you played it or if you were involved at all, but I, I can't say enough about the the work he did there. I have not seen that, and I have not seen Roaring Gap, which I'm told is just stunning. But I've seen his other work at, uh, for example, Sedgefield and uh, Forsyth in North Carolina. Uh, I walked worked closely with the uh, Carolina Golf Club in Charlotte when they hired Chris, and I was very impressed with uh, kind of a very bold, uh, aggressive approach to uh, bringing back kind of the vertical intensity of Ross and. You know, every one of these architects has a different style of doing restoration. So if you have your choice, where do you weigh in on a Ross historical restoration versus a restoration renovation? If I mean, if it's just up to Bradley Klein, you get a pick. If you're taking a look at a, a beautiful vintage Ross that needs a, a restoration, do you lean towards the purest form of restoration or the restoration renovation? Where do, where do you lie on well, that? Well, um, the first thing I say is let's find out what you had, how much of that, can, it, that makes sense, and sometimes um, you can do it. Uh, now, sometimes they've, they've built new holes or they've Absolutely. abandoned holes. Yeah, it's just changed. That, yeah. that, gets, that's, that gets complicated. Uh, I don't tell them what to do. My preference, though, is to have a close look at what you had, then decide. Now, the first thing is – no restoration brings a golf course back to what it was. Um, if you brought it back to what it was, it would look pretty messy because mowing patterns, mowing heights, drainage, all that stuff. Now, so now here's the thing. There are, there are a number of architects who I think are extremely cynical about this. Their view is, well, you can't do pure restoration. Therefore, anything goes. No, I, I think that's too cynical. I, what I think is now here, um, let's, let's, Find out what you had. How close can we get to that? Now, one of the things Ross did is he built 480-yard par fives. Uh, he might not have designated on his on a scorecard five par, but it was played as a five par. My view is if you can get yardage on the back, uh, by moving the tee back, do it, but do it on the long holds. Don't do it on the short holds. So one of the things I try to do is, you know, I know people generally, uh, good players are hitting it longer than they did back then. Uh, average players are hitting it longer, uh, but there are also a lot of golfers who are hitting it uh, not as long or they're getting older. So there are a lot of things you look at. So one of the things I would try to do is keep the character of the short holes and the medium to longer holes, those you lengthen and lengthen them when you can by moving the tee back. But I'm very I – don't, I don't like moving greens. No, I – yeah, absolutely. How about bunkers? That's the question though, right? So – if you're moving it back, are we assuming that we're moving it back far enough or the right ratio that those bunkers that uh, were historic bunkers are still in play strategically? You get where I'm going? Yeah, I know exactly where you're going. So the, the first issue is 
Ross put bunkers in lots of different places. He did. And, and, alignment and, you bunkers. Know, sometimes, and, yeah, sometimes they didn't yeah, even seem I, to play even in the Hickory era. Well, I mean, you know, you go to a country club of Orlando and there's a there's a bunker in the middle of the first fairway, 130 yards, I'm guessing here, 130 yards off. Well, what what is that doing there? It's there to make you think because it's breaking up a big area. So um, I like that one because anybody can carry it uh, from whatever tee you're playing. Now, that's not a bunker you'd move back to 220 yards. So there are a couple of things. Now, at, now it depends on the topography. At Country Club of Orlando, it's basically a dead flat site. You can move almost any bunker anywhere, and uh, it's going to have similar visibility. What you don't want to do, uh, you know, the Robert Trent Jones era uh, in post-World War II, he was trying to move everything back to 260, 270 off the back tee to capture, the, you know, the good player. So the first thing he did is he had a formula and he ended up putting the bunkers left and right and make you play down the middle. But the second thing is, what if the land fell up off and Ross put the bunker on the upslope for visibility? You can't move the bunker. So a lot of the answer is depends on what the topography is. Uh, now, the, the, you can't have every relevant feature that Ross had in play with equal proportionality today because of the variance in topography so where you can you move the tee back or you reposition bunkers or you and you know build more bunkers ahead or you signal by putting a bunker at the top of the hill but you can't formulate a, a, a you know a, it's not a formula out here it's not that bunkers need to be 240 260 no he had them all sorts of angles and crossing it line along along the line of play so you you have to pay attention to that pattern and then hope the topography allows you to shift that bunker. And in some cases it will, in some cases it won't. But the last thing you want to do, uh, which they did in the 60s and 70s, they wanted to put a bunker at 270, so they moved it. And then in order to create visibility, they'd prop it up 10 or 15 feet and put pipe underneath so they could drain it. Uh, and it looked like a thing sticking out like nowhere. So uh, that whole movement was wrong because what they did is they – we're formulating a, a, num a numerical, you know, formula for putting where bunkers should be, and then they were, uh, if it was, they would pop it up in order to facilitate drainage. So Ross's bunker placement has to do with drainage, visibility, strategy in the hole. Hopefully, you can recreate that, but you're not going to be able to do it everywhere. So my suggestion always is, what look at what you have, look at what he was trying to do. How close can we get to that here? And um, sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you have to accept the fact that the bunkering is a little bit offline. But, you know, sometimes even putting a bunker at 220 off the back tee, for most players, um, they still have to deal with that shot. You're talking about members here. So the other thing I, I, I remind them is um, one of the things I found out is that at most clubs – the back tee play is about 1% oh, for or maybe sure. less. I agree a 1,000%. And, and, and so the other thing is the people who are playing the back tees generally are not paying for golf. They're industry comps. They're college kids. They're scratch golfers. They're amateurs or they're pros. So don't, don't worry. The first thing I ask is who's playing the golf course and who's paying the bills? And the people who are paying the bills, most of them can't play beyond 6,700 yards. They're more comfortable at 6,200 yards. And from the forward tee, those players should be at 4,400, 4,500 yards. So one of the things you try to do is make sure that this, the conversation is relevant to the people who are actually playing. And when you do that, you find out, lo and behold, that most of Ross's features are relevant 
to the way most players actually play if they're playing from the proper set of tees. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Bradley, I agree. I agree so much on that very statement that you just made there. Very few golf courses need to be over 6,500 yards in America, even with our modern equipment standards. I mean, the average golfer hits the ball 200 to 220 yards. It's not much further than the Hickory era for the average golfer. Maybe it's a longer, but it still brings those bunkers in play. And I'd look at people wanting to expand their courses to 7,000 yards for less than 1% of the population that plays the course. It drives me a little crazy that we think we need to just keep on expanding, expanding, expanding when the average golfer is fine and would have a great time and be challenged at 6,500 yards. And the other mistake they make is they try to make it up where they can on any hole. So they end up with nine par fours that are 420, 430. And I think what you should do, Ross almost always built a short, he wasn't thinking about drivable four pars back then, but he built a lot of great 320-yard par fours, like the third hole at Pinehurst number two, or 13th at Franklin Hills, where the green sits on a volcano kind of dome, and the hole is 295. Uh, some there's some great holes like that. My club has three of them, and I I love each one of them because if you take anything less than a par, and I'm a five handicap, you just want to just murder yourself. Because, you know, it sets you up for the smart play, the layup, having your perfect any distance you want into that green, including driving it, and it still plays. It's it's I think those three holes are three of the most fun holes we have on the course because of it. And the same thing with par threes. You know, uh, the best example I can give you is at the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne. I think it was the fifth hole. It was playing about 145, 150. And it was almost impossible for these guys to, to, to stay on the green. Uh, they're hitting eight irons, nine irons, seven irons sometimes with the wind. Uh, and those shots, those, you know, kind of half shots, those are really, really demanding. So if you give everybody – Par threes that are all 185, they're all going to hit a four iron or a rescue club or a four wood or something. Whereas when you have a variety, I always like to look back. And I think Ross was very mindful of that. And I'm always amazed because he had great 120-yard holes like the third at Wanamoisit, for example, or the second at Whitensville, the great uh, par three, uh, the, the, the nine-hole golf course, or the uh, the ninth at Scioto. Uh, you know, great little drop or the um, – the ninth at Pinehurst, number two, pretty much. And then he had long par threes, which is amazing to me. The fourth hole at Worcester was 230 yards. Uh, there's a hole at Salem that's about 220. Uh, the se- I think it's the 17th at Brayburn was 260. That was downhill. But um, those are stout holes. So he mixed it up all the time, too, where you, you know, you're, you're hitting a clique and you're hitting a niblick. Let me ask you this. So my home club, Bel Air Country Club, was founded in 1897. In the mid-teens, Donald Ross renovated the 36-hole complex. He came back 10 years to make further recommendations. In 2020, our West Course, which sits upon the Gulf of Mexico, is undergoing a restoration renovation. And I am fighting the club. I shouldn't even put this on the podcast. But I'm fighting the club to fully restore the original fourth hole, which was a shorter par three. It's 150 yards over a ravine. And onto an island green, this is originally, was on an island green surrounded completely by a bunker that encircled the green. On top of that, it has this beautiful backdrop of the Gulf of Mexico, which gives you a view that is eerily similar to the 16th at Sleepy Hollow. Now, I'm pushing for the club to fully restore that. But as it currently stands, they want 
a run-up path so that golfers can hit approach shots along the ground. My first question to you is, how unique is that par three design for Donald Ross? And how hard should we fight to completely restore it in today's modern game? I could name uh, half a dozen short drop shot par threes surrounded or virtually surrounded by sand. Yeah. Uh, Oyster Harbors has one. I think it's the third hole. Uh, Tijuca in Rome, New York, uh, the site of Ross's only hole in one. And I have photos of it in my book uh, surrounded by sand. Now, I, it, it's not a continuous because, uh, it, but it's like eight or nine bunkers. Uh, the, um, the I mentioned the ninth at Scioto is like that. The third at Wanamoisit, which is, by the way, the uh, signature of the Donald Ross Society, the logo. So he always had, you know, a short hole where you had to hit it in the air uh, to get it on the green, uh, and you had to go over sand to do it. So that's not unusual, and especially if he's got a backdrop of the of the gulp. Can I ask who the architect is on this project? Uh, the, the it's going to be uh, for the redesign, right? Uh, yes, that's going to be Fry and Straka. Okay, well, good luck. Um, I, I guess the, the the other second part of that was you know how hard I, I've been. I wrote a nine paragraph letter <laughs> to the club as the crazy historian guy. Uh, fighting for, you know, I gave them nine different reasons why we'd want to restore it. That's a fight worth having, is it not? To restore a hole like that? And and let me ask you this. I mean, you do this. I mean, this is what you do as a, as a consultant. If you're facing a hole like that, what is your argument for restoring it the way it was versus allowing a run-up path to the green? Uh, first of all, uh, uh, this do we have women and children listening to this? Because at every club, <laughs> you go ahead. Go every ahead. Every club has has a resident asshole yep. who is yeah, that's dead right, right and uh, over the top and dogmatic. And I'll give you a great example of this because uh, I'm very sensitive to the politics of it. So the first thing I'm going to tell by, you, by is the way, Bradley, the fuck, you're the first person ever to swear on the podcast, but I gave you license to do it. Uh, so. Here's the thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a political process, and the harder you press, the more likely you are to lose. So I'm going to tell you that. At, at Cedar Rapids Country Club in Iowa, uh, I was there in 1990, I think 2000, and I told them what they needed to hear. I told them that their superintendent wasn't doing the right job. I told them that they had a mess of a golf course, and uh, they had a lot in the ground that they could recapture, and they thought I was nuts, and they threw me out of there. Uh, and 20 years, 15 years later, they had me back and thanked me because they apologized that I was right. And they got everything done with Ron Pritchard. You've dealt with Vaughn then. You name everybody. I've dealt with them. Vaughn Halyard, yeah. Steve Greif. He, he says, hello. I told you were coming on the podcast. And he was like, just mention crazy Vaughn and he'll get it. Well, the crazier one was Steve Greif. Uh, okay. who's a, a dent- he was a mad dentist. And back then he was into all this historical restoration. And I told him back off they're not ready and he kept at it and ultimately he had to learn to ally himself with others so it's a political pro this is you know by the way i wrote i i have a phd in political theory i wrote my dissertation on machiavelli and clausewitz and it's very helpful in golf because it's an alignment of power and you have to have 10 or 12 other people who think the same way you do otherwise they're going to dismiss you as a loudmouth jerk so even though you're right even though you're right so unless you can convince others to go along with it. Uphill battle uh, you're for gonna, me. 
Yeah, and you're gonna, and the louder you argue, the more accurate your claims are, the more they're gonna think you're being difficult, and they're gonna sort of dismiss you. On that question, I, I let me ask you this though, because it leads into this: What do clubs and their members need to bear in mind when they're thinking about restoring a Donald Ross course? Right, because they're not always thinking it, about it from your perspective here as the historical restoration. They're thinking, how is this? I mean, this might be wrong. I'm not referring to this in my club's perspective or any members, but how is this course and this restoration going to play for my game? Do you run into that all the time? Um, so, yeah, you know, um, one of the things you try to do with the member, um, I, I'm going to be nice about this. One of the skills that an architect and a superintendent for sure have to learn is how to pretend to listen to members. And one of the things I try to do as an outsider is come in and explain to them that they don't know what they're talking about. Now, if you tell someone you're an idiot <laughs> and you don't know what you're talking it's not gonna about, not going to go well. Not going to go real well. Yeah. So what I've learned is what I do is just get technical. So one of the things I explain to them when I start is that 90% of the golf course that is fun- that makes it function is invisible and underground. And you start talking about bunker liners and irrigation and you talk about soil chemistry and you talk about drainage and you talk about airflow. And so what you try to inculcate among people is you don't know what you're talking about uh, and it's too technical and you've got experts who do this for a living. So what you hope is that you hire the right people who can go about their job because they were experienced enough and professional enough and they can go about their task and when forced to explain it, but not to have to be accountable at every turn. So um, this is a point of contention, I think, sometimes. I think there are some architects who think that it's important to have uh, focus groups where you bring in uh, the senior men and the club champions and the nine-hall women and the juniors and you you know you sit down for two hours and go through all these things. And there's some architects who are very good at this. Jay Blasey is great at these long, detailed meetings. Andy Staples also, amazing. I, I don't have the patience that they do. And I, I um, and uh, that's a process where you kind of grind them to down and uh, explore a lot of ideas, but you never make promises. And what you have to make clear to them is that this is a complicated process that has both a technical and an aesthetic as well as a playability. But the last thing you're trying to do is create a golf course that favors one kind of player. So the, 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 mon- the mantra all along is you're trying to make a golf. When you do a restoration, you keep in mind what it looked like. But in terms of the range of play, you're trying to make the golf course simultaneously more interesting and more demanding for the low handicapper and a little more uh, forgiving and easier for the high handicapper. And the way to do that in every case is to open it up, firm it up, and create ground game options. Uh, now, you're not going to be able to do that to equal proportional um, uh, success on every hole, but you try throughout. That's the first thing. So you, and so you have to have a representative committee where you have a mix of players. And if you have a golf course that – uh, the, the the board or the committee comprises just single digit or you know club champions or whatever, you're going to have a problem. This is especially the case with women. I noticed this with women golfers. Uh, women golfers tend to be very reluctant to to do anything to the golf course that will actually make their game more fun and more interesting. I think generally they are dominated by a few single digit players. And with the the idea that they should keep having a golf course that's hard, so that they will have a competitive advantage with other women in the leagues in the in the neighborhood, and yet you have to show them 
you know what? It's not fun as a 20 handicapper to go the entire year without hitting a green in regulation. That's not a lot of fun. So there should be options. And so there's a lot of teaching and educating that goes on there um, generally. It's a complicated process. Um, but you have to have a procedure for it, and you don't want to be in a position where you're having to design everything to satisfy every constituency or where you're uh, you know, dummying down a golf course completely in order to satisfy one group. So having said that, um, the case that you're referring to, uh, how long is the hole? That's 145, 150 yards. It's a beautiful short hole. And what's the forward tee? Uh, probably 120. That's it, long. It might, it might be shorter than that. It might be short. I, I've never played the short tee, so I, I, to be honest with you, off the top of my head. Well, so here's the first thing is uh, the people who play forward tees generally don't hit it more than 120 yards in the air. So, And they're hitting a low trajectory, and they're mainly hitting woods. Hold on. I have it right so, here. I have the scorecard. Um, fourth hole. Yeah, nailed it. 120 yards. So it'd need to be shorter is what you're saying. Yeah, it would help. It would help if they're hitting a wedge or nine iron or, you know, make it, make it 80 yards. And for the seniors, it should be 100 yards. So the first thing is I would look for tee ground, teeing equity rather than tinkering with the whole design of the golf hole. Um, the other thing is that it was – do you have a pretty good image of what the hole looked like? Uh, yes, I have Donald Ross's sketch. I don't have it in three dimensions, obviously, but I have uh, the actual uh, blueprint of the hole. Yeah. From the from, uh, from the Tufts archives, of course. Yeah, um, and I, I think it would be unfortunate if there was some sort of straight bowling alley lane right down the middle. Oh, um, I agree. That was my argument against yeah. it. And, and I mean, we're Bermuda. It's elevated already, so the run-up shot was really, in my opinion, a non-factor. I think it really comes down to people being afraid to hit out of a bunker or uh, forcing somebody to hit out of a bunker who may not be a great bunker player. Let me let me yeah, ask well, you this. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, one of the tricks you could do is actually make the layup long and have an open area behind so that there was a reward getting through without ruining the vista of you the have tee. the aesthetic. And that was actually, I think, uh, paragraph nine. <laughs> paragraph nine of my argument is if you want that accessibility to the green for mowing, mowers, et cetera, or pass or a bailout shout, make it long. And so the vista but, but, is still preserved. So I'm not going to let you go. Who did you write the letter to? Uh, I wrote it to um, Jason Straka, uh, who replied to me, he, uh, to be fair, Fry Straka wanted to uh, restore the hole uh, completely. They wanted to have the island Good. hole. Okay. Um, they Good. received pushback from the club. So I believe we had the head of the club and a couple of the committee members that I sent the email to. So all I'm going to tell you is... Uh this part, gets this part might be edited out so I don't get kicked out of the club. No, I'm kidding. It's going to no, be it, No, it's, it's actually instructive. Yeah. Uh, in these cases, you have to have a group of people who are making a case. If it's just a special pleading on your part, it's never going to win. So it has to – in all these things, and I, that's why one of the things I do early on if I'm involved, I want to know who, which 12 people are going to lead the, the fight. It can't be the superintendent. And the other thing is – you make that process fun. So in the along the way of you know selecting an architect and looking at you, you, you you're going to go on road trips. You're going to look at their work. You're going to play different courses, get a sense of camaraderie, make it fun and interesting and educational along the way. And that's got to be um, how you go. Otherwise, you're going to end up with these endless battles, and those are no fun and uh, they're brutal and they're time consuming. Well, let's jump into this. I'm going to ask you. We're going to make this a two part podcast, obviously now. Um, but I'm going to hit into, I have one more question on restorations and then we're going to go into 
your expertise specifically with how to educate as the people out here who want to learn more about Donald Ross from a plain standpoint beyond buying your book, which I suggest everybody does. We're going to, I'm going to ask for recommendations from you as well. So my, my last restoration question is this, is there a Donald Ross course out there that's on the top of your dream restoration list? Like, is there just one out there that when you go to bed at night, you're like, man, if we could bring that back the way it was meant to be, it would blow the world away. Is there one of those for you, Bradley? Um, good. Nobody's ever asked me that question. Surprised. Uh, that, I, I think yeah. that's the one I'd want to, that's probably my first question I wanted out of you. Um, I'm not going to answer it because I see a lot of courses that have a lot of potential. So, if, I, I, well, I'll put it this way. I've been, I had been waiting 35 years for Inverness to do what they did. And to me, they got it right. So uh, rather than to think about forward, uh, and, the, and the other one I'm really glad they did was Oak Hill up in uh, Rochester, which uh, had lost a lot of the character and got a lot of it back now. That's going to reopen this year. But I see a lot of golf courses that, and, um, you know, I'm involved with a few and um, going to be involved with a few more where I think a lot can be done. And I, I think I'd rather wait to see. No, that's fine. Let me do this. Let's let's try to get the 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 listeners involved here a little bit. So you know, here we've got you know thousands of people listening. Some know a lot about Donald Ross. I know the Donald Ross Society is listening. Thank you for listening today. I think they're going to post this interview uh, on their uh, website as well. But in your mind, so we're going to go through like your thoughts. What are the pinnacle golf courses designed by Donald Ross? And this isn't, you know, you can leave one off. You can, you know, just let's just stick to a couple that just really stand out in your mind of encapsulating who he was as one of the best architects of all time. Are we going public or private or what? I, I, I think let's go private because I have a separate question on the, or let's go both. Give me maybe two of each that stand out in your mind. And then I'm going to ask you some questions about public golf courses as well. Uh, well, the, the hero of my book uh, is Essex County Club in Manchester by the Sea. It's important biographically because it's the culmination of, of Ross's early work. Uh, Ross came to, was born in Scotland in 1872, came to the United States in 1899, set up shop. And in 1909, I think it was, I'd have to look it up. Uh, I think it was 09, he moved over 10 uh, to uh, uh, Manchester, to Essex. Uh, as the resident golf professional, he lived in a house that's behind the uh, 15th tee. And he was there for about six or seven years, I think it was, until he became an independent designer and left. Uh, And so that golf course, which was there before, uh, has a lot of his uh, beautiful, early, kind of quirky handiwork. This is before he had his design associates of Walter Hatch and and J.B. McGovern. It has a lot of wacky mounding. and blind shots. The blind shots are fantastic. Just, I mean, fantastic. So, So that one, and it's, a lot of elevation and a lot of really interesting contour laterally and vertically to me is uh, just a stunning piece of early work. Um, in terms of the mature uh, uh, golf course, uh, I'd have to say Franklin Hills in uh, Detroit, which is a private club uh, right near Oakland Hills. It has a tremendous strength and character and maturity to it. Um one of my favorites that's lesser known is Northland in Duluth, Minnesota. 
sitting there overlooking Lake Superior with a kind of climb. It's a kind of classic lynx layout on rugged land and a fantastic set of greens and long vistas. And I think that's a great test as well. Um, Aronimink, extremely strong, very demanding in Philadelphia. A lot of varied bunkering. It's just gone through another restoration uh, by Gil Hans. Uh, extreme uh, intensity of rollouts. And what's really strong about Aronimink is the way in which the greens tie into the surrounds and the rollouts. And so a shot missed a little bit gets thrown off way off to the side. Um, I actually think that uh, that's that's what I would, you know, I start looking at. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm leaving off a lot of courses. No, and that's fine. Foreign- what, if anything, do these courses have in common? Let me ask you that. From a strategic standpoint, from a playability standpoint, from a design standpoint, there's a lot of variety in the courses you just named. Are there any things that, that stick out as you know, something in common between the, the five or six you just listed? Well, um, no, because um, the... Uh, Essex, a lot of those greens are at grade level, and uh, gradually, as Ross's work matured, as he acquired uh, understanding of topography and design skills and construction crews, he started building up his greens. So, uh, I mean, a really great example of Ross is Holston Hills in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, um, mid twenties. The basic theory there is. The raised fill pad. In other words, the green sits up about two, three feet above grade, uh, and it's um, the, the bunkers are built into the base of the fill pad. Scioto is like that as well. So I think what happened is gradually uh, Ross went from ground gra- game uh, features on the on the grade to building and shaping that green, and he spent an awful lot of time sculpting. And what he would do with his crews is he would just, you know, in those days it was hand labor. A team of oxen or horses or mules or laborers from uh, overseas with wheelbarrows and shovels would take the dirt and pull it forward and get a fill pad green two, three feet above. Uh, The front of the green might be a foot above, two feet above. The back of the green was about six feet above. And he'd bury the – pack the bunkers into the side of the fill pad and present it. So I think what's distinctive about Ross is the way in which – the green works as the focal point and everything is moving toward that. And it's almost as if he designed it so that you would have to get into the right position off the tee in order to get the right angle in. And so if he put a bunker in on the left side, uh, at the green with a little bit of run up or uh, space to, to see the shot, the ideal shot into the green would be from the right. And one of the things he did is he bent his holes both ways. So, Seminole is famous for this. Uh, we have a right-to-left tee shot. You have a left-to-right second shot. And then the next hole, it flips. So you're, you're constantly shifting. It's not as if you just had all hooks or all fades or one kind of shot could work. He was demanding in terms of the shapes and the opportunities you had. Uh, but his greens were shaped in such a way they tended to support a shot because they were tipped from back to front. So you could gauge a run-up and it would run out. And one of the beautiful things about Ross that's really underappreciated is he usually, not always, but usually even with the fill pad that was perched up a little bit, you often had a, an area to run the ball in, but the key was to land the ball 10 or 15 yards short rather than right in front of the green. And I see this all the time where uh, a good example of this is the second hole at Pine Needles, the long par four. 
where the fairway is moving down and then the green kind of picks up. And if you want to get the right weight and bounce in, to an approach, you have to land the ball 10 or 15 yards short before the upslope. Because if you land it at the upslope, you're going to hit the upslope and die. And so the key there, everybody, I see this all the time. Let's say you have a 160-yard shot from where you're standing to the center of the green. Now, normally that might be, let's say, a six iron for a lot of guys or a five iron, six iron. Let's say a six iron. So, well, I'm going to try to run it, uh, land it short and run it up. So you take a seven iron. Well, that's exactly the wrong shot because it comes in shorter at a higher angle and it's more likely to hit the upslope. If you really want to play a Ross course, instead of hitting a six iron full to the green, take a five iron on a lower trajectory and bounce it in by landing it short with the upslope that kicks it up into the green. I see that all the time. Love that. So, uh, the, yeah, let yeah. me ask you this. Unlike many of his counterparts, uh, like McDonald, Rayner, and McKinsey, Donald Ross had many publicly accessible golf courses. For the golfer wanting to experience and learn more about Donald Ross from playing standpoint, which courses would you recommend? Um, I'm going to I'm going blank on the course in Chicago on the south side that just went public. Um, oh, uh, is it uh, Ravislow? Ravislow, yep. yes, great example. Uh, which he did for a uh, an old German Jewish clientele in the in the 20s. Max Baer was a member there. Uh, it, it's rec- recently gone public, so I'd go to Ravislow. It's a great example of early 20s architecture. Uh, I happen to like uh, some of the scruffier places, um, and I'm going to go inexpensive here because yeah, obviously, you know. I, actually, that was my next question: is is there a poor man's Donald Ross for the golfer on a budget to learn more about? Yeah, Donald well, Ross? Yeah, the Wilmington Municipal in Wilmington, North Carolina is a great example of that. Uh, you might have to take your shirt off when you cross the road to play the second hole, but uh, that's part of the local <laughs> lore. Love it. Um, Triggs Memorial in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, George Wright in Boston is a really fine example of a, of a late, mid-30s uh, Ross course. Um, trying to, um, I happen to like... Um, uh, at French Lick, not the Pete Dye course, but the Hill course where they had the uh, 24, they had the 24 PGA there. Uh, that's a very good example. It's been restored to some extent uh, with a, an outrageous set of greens. That's a beautiful one as well. Where, do you, did they restore them to the original greens? Do you feel like that was a faithful re- uh, re- restoration? Well, when you get to the crazy eighth hole with 12 feet of elevation change on the green, you realize, yeah, they were, they did pretty good on a restoration. Yeah. And, uh, that, by the way, that, by the way, was... Um, Brian Curley and Dave uh, and Mike Fay from the Ross Society who were involved there. And um, I give them a lot of credit. Uh, that green in particular, the eighth hole, it's it's the biggest, most outrageous green I've ever seen uh, of Ross. So I, I, the French Lick course, I think, is a really good example of um, class. I'm, I know I'm missing um, off the top of my head. These are always tough to do. No, but, I understand. Uh, Ravislow, Wilmington. Um, oh, the other one is Fort Myers. Uh, Fort Myers, Florida, where uh, Steve, where uh, Steve Smyers did a restoration of a public golf course. That I think they're doing seventy-five thousand rounds there, like eight-minute intervals. They're booked every minute of every day because it's popular, accessible, wonderful golf. Uh, really good, simple, traditional uh, Ross uh, restoration there at Fort it's Myers. It's great, though, right? I mean, like I just mentioned, the the architects where it's very hard or very expensive to find works of theirs, you know, that have been restored, almost all of them, or let's say, it's not all, 
the majority of them are private or very private, uh, which we both yeah. know there's a little bit of a difference. So it's great, though, for those folks who appreciate architecture to have a chance to play a master's golf course and, and do so, you know, at a, a very reasonable rate. That's what I love about Don Ross. I, I think he not only did he he played both sides of the ball. He obviously made courses for uh, the very rich and wealthy, and 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 some of those courses are very very private. But he also made publicly accessible golf courses uh, where the everyday Joe, even today, in some cases, can pay thirty dollars or twenty dollars to play eighteen holes and enjoy his mastery. He built public golf courses in the 20s. He wrote about it. He built them in uh, Jacksonville, in, in um, Delray Beach, in uh, West uh, – where else? Um, yeah, up and down the, the coast. Um, and, um, you know, those are really interesting uh, places. And um, it's, it's possible to see really good – oh, the other one I was going to re- recommend is Tiyushika. Where is that? Tiyushika. Uh, well, it's a, it's a private course, but – Anybody can get on. It just if you just you know you call and pay. It's in Rome, New York. And if you're going to Turning Stone Resort, go to Tijuca. It's only 15 miles away. It's uh, about 40 miles east of Syracuse. It's an absolute gem, untouched. Ross. It just has a lot of trees that they need to take out, but all the features are there. It's got a great little uh, surrounded uh, by sand, par three, with a thumbprint where Ross made his only hole in one. That's the seventh hole. That's in my book, and um. Uh, a good photo of it. Tijuca, I sent any anyone any architect who's doing a restoration. I tell them go see Tijuca, and then go see Whitensville. Whitensville is a nine-hole golf course. I'm involved there, uh, south of Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, and it's it's basically untouched. Uh, it has a few more trees, but it's got a lot of great character. It's got a good membership. They appreciate what they have, and uh, it's all right there. So I love it. Yeah. You know, on, on that note, we're going to end this episode. We're going to, you're going to stay on the line. Don't hang up on me, Bradley, because we're going to keep going. Folks, we're going to release this The uh, is episode 27, and we will start with number 28, episode 28, talking about the history of Donald Ross. So we'll go in a little bit about uh, what started him down the road of architecture. We'll get into a little bit of Pinehurst and how it's affected restorations that have followed. And we'll get into uh, Bradley's expertise in restoration a little bit more. So thank you for listening to episode 27. Bradley, thank you so much. We're going to continue, obviously. And folks, you're going to hear this in, the ne- in episode 28. Uh, but this is the Talking Golf History Podcast, yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>